0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 1, American Mirror. Let's start in a courthouse in Springfield, Illinois, near the end of April 1865. The benches are full of attorneys, but they're not here for a trial. They've gathered to plan a memorial to Abraham Lincoln, a man many of them had faced in court, a man who had been a companion on the sometimes dusty, sometimes muddy roads of central Illinois. The lawyers are listening to a man deliver the resolutions of a committee expressing their grief over Lincoln's assassination. The speaker is in his mid-40s, he stands five foot nine with graying hair, and he reads the resolutions rapidly, occasionally flashing his tobacco-stained teeth to the audience. His name is William Herndon, and probably no man in the country had spent more time with the late president than William Herndon. Lincoln and Herndon worked together as law partners for 16 years and talked for hours in their dirty, dingy office on any number of subjects, some even law-related. Lincoln seemed to have had a protective, even paternal feeling toward Herndon, who was nine years his junior. Lincoln usually addressed men by their last names, but he called Herndon Billy throughout their time together. Herndon, in turn, once called Lincoln, quote, the best friend I ever had or expect ever to have, except my wife and mother. The scene in the courthouse, as described by historian David Herbert Donald, went like this. Herndon's resolutions reflected his affection for his old partner. They praised his, quote, uprightness, integrity, cordiality, and kindness of heart, amenity of manner, and his strict attention not only to the rights, but the feelings of all. And Herndon, according to Donald, quote, spoke with much emotion, recalling his long personal and professional relations with the dead president. But as he spoke, Herndon said in passing that Lincoln, quote, was not as broad minded as some other men. This brought Stephen T. Logan to his feet. Logan was in his mid-60s and had his own connection to Lincoln. Before going into business with Herndon, Lincoln worked as Logan's junior partner. Logan had a high forehead and thick white hair, and if you see pictures of him, it looks like he's wearing a helmet of moss. He's arguably the most distinguished attorney present, though you wouldn't know it from his appearance. Logan never wore a necktie His pants were inevitably baggy and ill-fitting, and he tended to chew tobacco as he spoke, with trails of saliva visible on his cheeks. Once, when they appeared on opposite sides of a court case, Logan tried to paint Lincoln as lacking in judgment and expertise. Lincoln countered by noting to the jury that Logan had put his collar on backwards. Logan also had an unpleasant voice, and he turned it on Herndon. Lincoln, Logan said, had been, quote, a man of very profound and comprehensive views and as free from narrowness as any man he had been acquainted with. This scene occurred amid profound national mourning for Lincoln, murdered about 10 days before the meeting. The local newspaper, the Illinois State Journal, gave a brief notice to the gathering between columns lined in black for the dead president. People wore buttons quoting Lincoln's second inaugural address, and Mourner stood in line for hours waiting to see Lincoln's casket, slowly making its way west to Springfield. Writers were planning books about Lincoln. Josiah Holland, a newspaper editor in Massachusetts, would deliver a eulogy for Lincoln, which he soon turned into one of the first full length biographies of the president. It was a fawning, perhaps too reverent portrait of Lincoln, but it sold a hundred thousand copies. Americans also started clamoring for pictures of Lincoln that they could hang in their homes. Some engravers were so unprepared for the demand that they dropped Lincoln's head onto engravings of other politicians. One Philadelphia engraver threw the 6-foot-4 Lincoln onto the body of former president Martin Van Buren, who stood about 5-foot-6. And Lincoln's head also ended up on top of John Calhoun and James Buchanan. This hunger for all things Lincoln already had a kind of religious aspect to it. Lincoln's death a few hours after Good Friday, and the strains of war that so famously altered his appearance, were already raising Lincoln to the level of American Redeemer, fully God and fully man, quoted endlessly for any purpose. Holland concluded his biography by calling Lincoln, quote, a statesman without a statesman's craftiness, and called Lincoln's life, quote, The choicest gifts that a mortal has ever bestowed upon us. Grateful to thee for thy truth to thyself, to us, and to God. Now, Herndon doesn't like any of this. He wants to publish a pamphlet that will reveal Lincoln's inner life, as he puts it, and bring him back to earth. This will grow into a massive research project that will take Herndon to the lecture circuit and into conflict with Lincoln's family. Herndon, arguably, started the search for the real Lincoln, one that might go on forever. If Lincoln wasn't Martin Van Buren, or John Calhoun, or James Buchanan, he's become almost everything else. Like scripture, the story of his life draws heavily on oral traditions shaped by the traumatic end of a singular existence. And Lincoln steps onto the pages of the national gospel as a platonic form. The poor boy relentlessly working to better himself, the prairie lawyer telling jokes and using an almanac to save a client's life, the politician defending the dignity of man, the president saving the nation, a soul touched by providence to carry out a sacred task. There are some truths in this. Few presidents started in such unpromising circumstances, and Lincoln's rustic origins hung off him like so many of his suits. He said git for get and thar for there. He started one of his greatest public addresses with Mr. Chairman. During his presidency, one diarist recorded Lincoln saying, me and the attorney general's very chicken hearted. And Lincoln's story is less rags to riches than rags to respectability. He earned good money from his law practice, but distrusting his business sense, Lincoln never pursued opportunities or investments that might have made him as wealthy as some of his colleagues at the bar. Lincoln's $25,000 salary in the White House was at least two and maybe five times what he made in his best year as an attorney. Lincoln did like funny stories, especially those involving outhouses, and told them in the White House the same way he told them on the Illinois Plains. But gospel is not history and history provides some important shading. Lincoln never hid his rural origins, but he never exalted or glorified farm life and spent his youth trying to escape it. He had a famously difficult relationship with his father, but other members of Lincoln's extended family felt he wanted little to do with them. And Lincoln's ascension came thanks to opportunities many other Americans notably women and non-whites of either gender, never enjoyed. Lincoln was an honest man, though like all successful politicians, he could leave out relevant context or present politically useful but outlandish ideas, sometimes disingenuously, sometimes sincerely. Some of Lincoln's professional colleagues thought him a talented but not elite lawyer, someone who had a gift for addressing juries, But who could be notably sloppy and negligent as well. We often think of Lincoln as an Atticus Finch of the Prairie, or conversely, as a railroad lawyer whose politics got shaped by the cold needs of his clients. The reality was more mundane. Lincoln earned most of his money from debt collection. His criminal caseload was small, and his corporate work, though it became more important in the late 1850s, was always limited. Lincoln's anti-slavery views made him famous, and they were sincere and took root at an early age. In antebellum, Illinois, settled largely by Southerners, a state where slavery had a strong economic constituency, these were not always politically expedient stands to take. But for most of his life, Lincoln opposed political and social equality for African Americans. He was not the only white person to hold these views But as a member of the Illinois State House of Representatives in the 1830s, Lincoln shamefully race-baited voters and said yes to resolutions condemning voting rights for African Americans. Like so many other white Americans, Lincoln for years refused to acknowledge that America was, is, and ever shall be a multiracial society. Following the example of his great hero, Henry Clay, Lincoln for decades supported colonization, a racist scheme to persuade black Americans to leave the nation of their birth. As president, Lincoln marked the first visit of black ministers to the White House by asking them to consider getting out of the country. Now, this attitude did change. During the Civil War, the service of African American soldiers would move Lincoln from this attitude to what can only be described as something different something closer to an understanding of what America is. But it's not at all clear how far he got, or how far he might have gone, had he lived. In fact, Lincoln often kept his feelings locked away. For all his good character and charisma, most contemporaries found Lincoln basically unknowable. He often seems like a performer who could charm a crowd and make them feel connected to him without ever revealing much about himself. His personal letters are warm, well-written, and often funny, but almost always guarded on emotional matters. He had one friend, Joshua Speed, with whom Lincoln showed unusual candor, but their intimacy was an on-again, off-again thing after Speed moved from Springfield. Adding to this sense of mystery around Lincoln were his swiftly changing moods. Recognized today as depression. Lincoln would suffer collapses that emotionally left him a thousand miles away from those around him, and on at least one occasion made friends fear for his life. Sorrow turned to joy and joy to sorrow with Lincoln so quickly that in his office he could suddenly stop his writing and, according to Donald, hold his head in his left hand and stare at the windows for hours. As historians note, we often see Lincoln as a mirror that might provide some insight into our country, some truth that will help us understand our manic dreams, our painful realities, and the achievements and injustices that bind us. And what we see in those big, sad eyes is intensely personal. Yet those reflections are incomplete as far as the man himself goes, because In the voluminous records of Lincoln's life, we have many Lincolns, Lincolns at different stages of life who might have had difficulty getting along with one another. There are threads linking all of them. Lincoln always had a powerfully magnetic personality. Those who knew him said that even if Lincoln didn't want company, company would seek him. People enjoyed his presence and often fought for his attention, Many of those who had bad things to say about Mary Lincoln, like William Herndon, were those who wanted more time with the great man. Lincoln always believed government could improve people's lives, whether by speeding travel, stabilizing the economy, or drawing lines around what the country would tolerate. Lincoln was always a humorous man who told jokes to pass the time and ease the burdens of his depression. Above all, Lincoln from cradle to grave was ambitious, ambitious for personal improvement, for recognition, and for advancement. The boy who wrote endlessly on the walls of his log cabin would, three decades later, read Euclid's geometry by fire and candlelight. And yet, these are different men. The Lincoln of the 1830s and 1840s is loud and exuberant, a man still trying to put himself together, charming and thoughtful in one scene, clownish and mean in the next. He's someone who can step off a road to rescue a pair of birds, and he's someone who can mock a political foe to the point of tears. This Lincoln goes in multiple directions searching for who he is, and shows an aggressiveness we don't often associate with the man. The Lincoln of the 1850s is a calmer, more self-possessed individual. In this period, Lincoln's speaking style changes. The viciousness wanes, and a more logical approach comes to the fore. He's become a leading member of his party, and seems to understand who he is and what he's capable of. The Lincoln of the White House years is at the height of his ambitions and the apex of his troubles. The strains and stresses of the Civil War mark his body and spirit, exhaust his humor, and often erode his self-control, showing the hard ego and deep emotion he carried throughout his life. But his national responsibilities and regular face-to-face contact with constituents, something that seems utterly impossible for a president today, forces Lincoln, perhaps unknowingly, to become a broader-minded person. And this is the great constant in Lincoln's life, his ability to change. No one could have escaped the poverty of Lincoln's youth without patience and a talent for self-transformation, and Lincoln had these qualities throughout his life. You see this in his youth, but also in his later political career. A Whig for more than two decades, Lincoln was in the political minority in Democratic-leaning Illinois. When the Republican Party was born out of the fusion of anti-slavery Whigs and Democrats in the 1850s, the Whigs were the junior partners and Lincoln had to work to keep the coalition together, at one key moment sacrificing his dream of a U.S. Senate seat to do so. As president, trying to think his way out of early Union reverses, Lincoln taught himself military strategy and grasped the basic truths of modern war before many of his own generals did. If he wildly overestimated Union sentiment in the South, he would realize before many other whites that destroying slavery was the only way to end an ever crueler war. This is one story of Lincoln. It is neither the first nor the last, and I make no pretension toward authority on the subject. I'm not a historian, just an enthusiast. While I'm drawing on the primary documents available from Lincoln's life, I'm also reliant on a number of scholars who I will quote throughout this presentation and whose books I've found enjoyable and enlightening. If you're new to Lincoln, I hope you find this podcast interesting. And if not, I hope you listen with a forgiving heart. So, why tell a story told 16,000 times before? If you compare Holland and Herndon's biographies to more modern takes, you see that the basic shape of the Lincoln narrative has stayed constant for well over a century. But Lincoln would tell stories repeatedly because they were good stories. And Lincoln's? is one of the best he strives he learns he grows from a childhood where he may not have owned a white shirt until he was 10 years old lincoln became the most powerful man in the country and this powerful man had a reflective streak that many politicians lack bearing the burdens of a national crisis while trying to understand the forces that placed his nation in peril but lincoln was also a man of his time and in his life We see how even the vision of a great person can be limited. There's much in Lincoln's thought that we find outmoded or, in some cases, outright offensive. Yet, the warmth and openness of the man, and that ability to change, still shine forth more than a century and a half after his death, and still makes for a compelling tale. We'll start that story next time with a look at Lincoln's restless ancestors and his parents. One a mystery, one a controversy, both survivors of early tragedies.